The scripture lesson today is shorter than what's printed in the bulletin. I'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. And I'll actually be reading from the King James Version, so it will sound different than what you might be following in your pew Bibles. This is uh, a few sentences of four chapters worth of discourse that Jesus uh, provides in the Gospel of John. And it is a discourse in which he is preparing his disciples for his impending death and for their life afterwards. These things have I spoken to you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. From the earliest days of our possessing language, there are certain texts that implant themselves in our minds and never leave. Some are religious. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Our Father who art in heaven. Some come from our national and political life. We hold these truths to be self-evident. With malice toward none, with charity for all. A republic if you can keep it. And some of these texts come through music. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Like most of you, I grew up with music in the background and foreground. In my case, from the earliest days of listening on a transistor radio. I'm from the city that Elvis adopted as home and that produced the Beale Street Blues. I watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and sang the protest songs of the 60s and 70s, even though I often didn't understand their words. Last week at a committee meeting in this congregation, I listened as a member of the church began the meeting with a devotional, which we normally do. She said, I didn't realize until he died how much the music of Prince permeated my life. His music was present at middle school dances, at high school proms, at wedding receptions, the Super Bowl halftime. I cannot get his music out of my head, she said. I have in recent weeks increased my workout routine to where I'm taking spinning classes at the Y. 
with spinning classes, you have music in the background. Four classes in the last two weeks have had nothing but the music of Prince. (laughs) One instructor towards the end of last week said that when we come to class this week, we had to all wear purple. I don't think I've ever even worn purple for Lent. You have. (laughs) You can go to the class. (laughs) Our lives are shaped by these texts that are all around us. Words written, words spoken, words sung. When I was an associate pastor in my mid-twenties, I was part of a staff of three clergy who followed a senior pastor who had served the church for 28 years prior to his retirement a year or so before we arrived on the scene. He lived less than a mile from the church in a retirement community that he had been instrumental in leading the church to establish in a building named after him and his wife. Now, long-standing members of the church remained attached to him, and most often their families invited him to preach their funerals. The new pastor under whom I worked was wise and gracious enough to grant his permission and blessing for this. This retired minister began nearly every funeral service with these words from the text we read earlier. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I cannot read these words without hearing his voice in the East Tennessee accent that he spoke in the West Texas culture for 28 years. As I said in the introduction, Jesus spoke these words in the Gospel of John to his disciples as part of his farewell discourse as he was facing his impending death and preparing them to face life without him. He bequeaths these words to his disciples, much as a grandmother bids us farewell and gives us final blessing and charge from the bed in which she will soon die. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. What do these words mean? How can they shape us in the same way that the 23rd Psalm or Lincoln's Second Inaugural or Little Red Corvette have shaped us today? Specifically, how does the peace of Christ, how does the peace Christ offers differ from the peace the world offers? And how does his peace let not our hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid? 
To try to answer this question, I've turned first to the late Father Raymond Brown, Brown, who first taught me New Testament at Union Seminary in New York. Father Brown says that the peace Christ offers is not simply the absence of warfare. As much as we would love to read no more of children and physicians losing their lives in bombings, whether by mistake or by the agency of evil tyrants. The peace of Christ is not simply the absence of warfare. Though the advent of such peace will ultimately triumph over the warring madness that humanity has known since Cain killed his brother Abel in front of the altar in an argument over whose offering to God was superior. Father Brown also says that the peace of God is not simply the absence of psychological tension. As much as we would like such tension to abate, so that such commonalities in our culture as internet rage, incivility, crime, urban and rural, racial taunts, rising rates of suicide, riots and rhetoric in our seeking of office and in our attempts at governing, that all these might become a thing of the past. The peace of God doubtless contributes to the lessening of such tension. But the peace of God involves more than its lessening. And Father Brown says that the peace of God is not simply the sentimental feeling of well-being that some of us experience in rare moments of freedom from responsibility as we behold the setting of the sun, northern lights overhead, or the holding of a child at birth or baptism. Thus the peace Christ brings is different from, and yet surely it encompasses, the absence of war, the alleviation of anxiety, the serenity of beautiful moments. Yet the peace of God is something more than all these. What is that something more? A second devotional that I recently heard a member of the church gives give moves towards expressing this something more of the peace of God. The devotional shared well-known words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his contrast of cheap grace with costly grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves, said Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipline, absolution without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. By contrast, Bonhoeffer says, costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a person will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Costly grace is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows. Such grace is costly, says Bonhoeffer, because it costs a person his life, and it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. 
These words of Bonhoeffer express a major element of the something more that is involved in the peace of Christ, namely the call to each of us to do the right thing, to do what we believe God wills, no matter what its costs are. The peace of Christ involves putting the will of God above our will, the justice of God above our comfort, the benefit of God's creatures above our benefit. Another set of words expresses this same call. The hymn, They Cast Their Nets in Galilee, was written in 1924 by William Alexander Percy, a wealthy planter in Greenville, Mississippi. Percy's the uncle of novelist Walker Percy. And he wrestled all his life with family responsibility, with race, with sexuality, with the obligation of the privileged for the poor among whom he lived and from whose labor he benefited. And Percy wrestled with what he believed and didn't believe about the Christian faith into which he was born. In what must have been a period of belief, yet marked with an awareness of what led many to unbelief, Percy wrote his hymn. They cast their nets in Galilee just off the hills of Brown, such happy, simple fisher folk until the Lord came down. Contented, peaceful fishermen before they ever knew the peace of God that filled their hearts brimful and broke them too. Young John who trimmed the flapping sail homeless in Patmos died. Peter who hauled the teeming net head down was crucified. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Yet let us pray for but one thing, one thing, the marvelous peace of God. Bonhoeffer and Percy both point to something about the peace of God that is counterintuitive, The peace of God is difficult, it is costly, it involves suffering, it involves sacrifice. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. Sacrifice, the sacrifice of self, is the something more to the peace of God. Father Brown adds one important element about the peace of God that goes beyond the ethics of giving ourselves away. He says that the peace of God is a gift that pertains to our salvation. As such, he says, it both ultimately comes from God and links us to God For eternity. And Father Brown adds that when Jesus speaks of life, 
He is speaking of something that, again, while coming from God and lasting throughout eternity, begins here and now. A gift given to us on earth in time. Thus, for us, knowing the peace of God involves accepting the perspective of eternity in the moment of time which is our earthly life. It means living in our time, in our day, in our situation from the perspective of divine eternity. Westminster, I, at my best, try to provide a human example that, that embodies or illustrates these sometimes abstract theological uh, concepts or biblical language from which I speak. And often at Westminster and in this community, I'm blessed to have more examples that I can draw from than the ear will tolerate listening to on one particular, in one particular sermon. I had an illustration written through Saturday, but then I conducted a funeral yesterday that caused me to come in this morning and change the illustration. You'll probably get the old illustration sometime in the future. And without full disclosure, I won't tell you that I wrote it way earlier. But as I said, from time to time at Westminster, we do conduct funerals or memorial services for people that we've never met. Yesterday, I conducted a funeral for a commander, David A. Hurt, Jr., who reared his children in this neighborhood, who was the brother of our member, John Hurt, and whose four sons had arranged for this funeral to be in our church. John was literally out of the country, though he himself, Commander Hurt, was never a member of Westminster. Commander Hurt's life was marked by sadness and service. Service to the nation through a stellar career in the United States Navy, graduate of the Naval Academy. Service to humanity by, as we saw today, being the father of four sons, 11 grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, two stepsons, one stepdaughter. And sadness related to the death of his mother two months into his life and the awareness that his father, also an Annapolis grad as he was, spent all of World War II in the Omori POW camp that was made famous by the book and movie Unbroken. And then when his father got out at the end of the war, when the commander was a student at Annapolis, the father passed away two months after his release. Commander Hurt's life was also marked by worship. For most of his years during in Episcopal churches, but recently in a congregational church in California where a memorial service was held last Saturday on what would have been his 90th birthday. Now, as is often the case when we do funerals, especially from people who who don't know us, 
Family members will request, will request readings for the funeral. A poem, a song, a hymn, a writing, something from their correspondence. And sometimes the requests are a biblical passage. This hymn, this service had several readings. One of which was an overlooked passage from a small book at the end of the New Testament. First Peter. Now, I've got to tell you, as you know, I do these biblical survey courses on Sunday afternoon that last all year long, and I've basically been teaching them for about 20 years. So whenever some upstart family member (laughs) comes up with a text that's new to me, I get my nose a little bit out of joint. (laughs) But that happened in this case. A 20-something grandson of Commander Hurt read this passage quietly and with great emotion. And it speaks to us today. Listen to what he said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who are being protected by the power of God Through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the future. Notice the the adjectives that describe the life that is available to us. Living hope. Imperishable inheritance. Undefiled. Unfading. Protected. This sounds to me like a life Marked by peace. But first Peter goes on. In this you rejoice. Rejoice. Sounds like peace. Even if now for a little while you had to suffer various trials. Though it comes from above, the peace of God does involve suffering. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. And finally, the passage concludes, Although you have not seen Christ, like our opening hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God, Only Wise, although you have not seen Christ, You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. Again, peace with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving, you are being given the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Indescribable and glorious joy, 
brought about by belief, by belief in Christ, whom we have not seen. It is the peace of God. And yet it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. But let us, let us pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. Amen.